following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. If you're just joining us uh, at Sacred City, we've been going through the book of Ephesians uh, for, I don't know, a long time, since the spring at least. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this entire letter that Paul wrote um, to the church in Ephesus. Um, And we have come to the tail end here of Ephesians chapter 5, and and Paul is talking about, he's addressing um, a household code. Basically, here's how the gospel reshapes and reorients the way that you manage your household. And he talks about husbands and wives, uh, and then he's going to talk about parents and children. He's going to talk about um, employers and employees. He's, He's talking about how the gospel reshapes our reality and this walk that we have in life. And so we are kind of sitting here in the topic of marriage. Um, last week we, was our first week here. We'll be here this week and then one more week. So just a short three-week stint in, uh, in marriage. And, and I, I would, I'd recommended that book initially. And I'll tell you that almost every single marriage sermon that I've preached in the five years of Sacred City, almost five years of Sacred City, ha- probably like 60% of that sermon comes right out of that book. So none of these ideas are mine, really. Um, great book. You should go and buy it. Um, And so these three weeks, last week we talked about um, the gospel posture in marriage, that of uh, humility and and honor. So husbands are called to love their wives in a self-sacrificing way, to honor her, to dignify her, to elevate her wives, are to submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ. And so this is the the gospel posture that we're called into in marriage. And this week we're going to talk about the purpose, and next week we're going to talk about gospel power in marriage. Um, and and I, I wish I had time to re-unpack un, un, all that stuff that I talked about last week. I don't have time. Um, so if you want to go back and catch the replay on YouTube or Facebook or uh, the podcast, you can find that on Spotify, iTunes, all that stuff. 
Um, so like I said, today we're looking at the, the purpose of marriage, the mission of marriage. Why does marriage exist? Now, depending on what era, what, what time you are asking this question, you'll get a couple different answers. Um, back in the day of the Apostle Paul, while he's writing to the church in Ephesus, a lot of them, the mindset that they had about marriage was marriage is about status and security. Marriage was invented, this is the, the, the cultural mindset, marriage was invented as a means to status. So if you are a man, the way that you maintain um, your status, the way that you maintain your honor and reputation among the, the society is that you have a wife that can give you kids, specifically sons, so that your family name can continue in. Um, and so this marriage was basically a, a tool deployed to maintain status in, in the Greco-Roman first century era and, and before that even. And for women, it was viewed as a means to security, that, that the husband, ten, men tended to be the breadwinners. They were the ones that could have jobs and work and contribute to society in a way where they're generating some sort of revenue and income. And so a, a woman would attach herself to a man, um, sometimes with a huge age, you know, disparate, what do you call it, a difference um, between older dude, younger woman, and she would have this guy that would basically provide for her security. He'd be the breadwinner, support the family, and all do this stuff. Now, when you ask this question in our time frame, in this cultural moment, uh, I think that the modern answer to that question of what is marriage for, would, we would say that marriage exists to make me happy. Marriage exists so that I can be satisfied, that I can have that happy life. In fact, if you go to Pinterest and, or, or, you know, search the memes on the internet, you'll find all kinds of stuff. It's like um, Pinterest quotes are just billions of them of like, find somebody who makes you feel warm and fuzzy and gives, you know, the, or, or like the, the memes sound like, um, find yourself a man who looks at you the way a fat kid looks at cake, something like that. You know what I, what I mean? It's like somebody who just sees you and loves you and you feel happy and you got this beautiful, like harmonious sort of thing going on in marriage. Now, of course we want happiness. Like we'd be idiots to say, oh, I, don't, I want a marriage that makes me miserable. That's not at all what we're advocating for this morning. But if happiness is the main objective in marriage, it is too fragile and too fickle because it ebbs and flows based on, first of all, where your partner's at, where your spouse is at in life, and the, kind of their demeanor, but also on your own ebb and flow of life as well. It is just unreliable, and it is inconsistent to be the main thing that we make our marriages about. And when you are in a drought of happiness, like when you go a long season where you feel like, man, I just don't know why. I feel unhappy, unsatisfied in this marriage. What happens then is you start to ask these questions of, why am I even in this? Why do I keep doing this? If it makes me so unhappy, if it's so hard. And unfortunately what you see is, is well, in, in culture you've seen this, this sort of um, trend happening where because this mindset is marriages for my happiness, when I am unhappy, you see a rise in no-fault divorce. You see a rise actually even in cohabitation where people say, I don't want to take the risk of being locked down and unhappy for the rest of my life. And so we're going to play marriage without actually making a covenant and being married. You see this, this uh, a rise in these things. 
And, and even in the st- extent of you, you do what you got to do to be married, and then once the kids are out of the house, you fulfilled your parenting obligations. If your marriage no longer makes you satisfied or happy, you bounce. If you make marriage solely about your happiness, not only will that self-centeredness make other people miserable, like your spouse specifically, but it's ultimately going to make you miserable. You're gonna be, you find yourself unhappy, constantly trying to fill that black hole with something else. The grass is greener on the other side is what we think. But what this shows us is that happiness in and of itself isn't big enough, isn't compelling enough to carry the purpose for marriage. And what we see here in Ephesians chapter 5, in this verses 22 through 30, 21 through 20, 30, uh, 33, Paul is showing us this big purpose of marriage, specifically if you look at verse 25 through 27. He says, Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. All of these words here, these these clues, that he might, so that he might, this is indicating the purpose of marriage and what Paul is saying is that the purpose of marriage is to make and be made holy. That's the whole point of it. To make and be made holy. In fact, as Paul goes on, he's talking about Christ and the church, or he's talking about husbands and wives, and then he goes to say, and and what I'm actually talking about is Christ and the church, that the, the goal of the gospel and the goal of marriage are one and the same. The point, the 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 progress, the purpose is for holiness. See, Jesus didn't live and die and be raised merely to give you warm, happy, fuzzy feelings. Though joy and happiness is a byproduct, Christ died to make us holy. The primary aim of the gospel, we see it, to to sanctify, to be set apart, to make us holy. In fact, that's, that's in part of Paul's language through the whole book of Ephesians as he addresses the church in Ephesus and he calls them the saints in Christ Jesus, the holy ones, the ones who have been made holy by the gospel, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as we talk about holiness, I think to to modern ears, you hear the word holiness, and you think that holiness is synonymous with boredom, right? To be holy is to be boring, to be lame, to be rigid, right? We have this sort of a caricature of a holy person, at least if you've grown up at the church, maybe this is yours, um, where, where you, you, there was this one person, maybe an older man or woman, that was viewed as holy. But really, they were just rigid and crotchety, a little bit grumpy. They loved their Bible. They loved Jesus, but they, they gave this demeanor of, that just was not attractive, right? You, you try to stay away from them. 
you know, especially if you're naughty in the front row pew or something. That was my experience as a kid growing up. Um, you try to stay away from that because this idea, like that's what we, we make this connection of to be rigid and legalistic and crotchety is what it means to be holy, but that is not at all what it means to be holy. That, that's repulsive, this sort of angry, uh, bitter, judgmental thing that we, we have that nobody want, is drawn into that. That's repulsive to us. And that's actually not at all the biblical vision of holiness. It's the opposite. The Bible describes holiness as that which is attractive and appealing. So that if you are living a holy life, there is something about that that draws people in. That people want to see what's up. And this is a language that we see in verses 25 and through, through 27. Paul talks about um, the church, the bride being splendor and, and splendor, H- having radiance, right? We're talking about beauty here. Beauty is attractive, and to be holy is to be beautified through the gospel. In fact, this, this, we see this in Psalm 96 where the psalmist talks about we see the beauty of God in his holiness and what do we do? We are drawn to it and worship in response to seeing it. And so this is what Jesus does to the church. He takes sin-ridden uggos like me and like you and he beautifies us through his love and his grace. And Paul cues us in here on how he does this. He, he makes us fresh and clean. This is the beginning of the beautification process that Christ does. He says that, that he has washed her. So in verse 28, Christ loved the church, verse 27, loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her or beautify her, having cleansed her, that's past tense, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So what what Paul says is that Jesus washes us. He takes the filthiness of sin that has, has plagued our hearts and he washes us in the water of the word. He goes on and says that, that Jesus removes the blemishes of sin. So um, he, he goes that he might present to the church, uh, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. See, Jesus, as the gospel goes to work on our hearts, Jesus is beautifying us by removing the sin and the patterns of sin and the brokenness that's in our life, the spots, the wrinkles, the blemishes that sin creates. And he's not just covering them up, okay? It's not like Jesus is the cosmic version of cover girl, okay? Where he's just gonna slap some foundation on it, do a little bit of contouring, I had to Google all this stuff to know what I'm talking about, and make you, you know, a little mascara to make you look good. He's really just covering up. That's not at all what Jesus is doing. Jesus actually works out the blemishes. He, he, he removes them, like, like if, if you're ironing, right? He, he smooths it out. He takes away the spots, the wrinkles, the blemishes, not just to mask them up, but removes them from us. And the way that he does that is through the word. Now, when you go to the Bible and you see um, what the, 
there's the word of God. It's repeated a lot of times. And, and actually, the word of God has several different meanings. So sometimes it actually means the law of God. It, it means the text, the sacred texts that we have. Um, and, and other times, what it means is, is the message of God. In other words, the gospel message. The gospel is the word of God. Other places, the word of God is Jesus. The word became flesh, right? But, but in this context, when, when Jesus is talking about the beautification process of how Jesus cleanses us of sin, it is washing through the water of the word, pointing back to the gospel message that we have received. In 1 John 1, The Apostle John talks about this. He says that this news of the gospel is what cleanses us from unrighteousness. And so now as those who have been cleansed, and and that cleansing happens the moment you put your faith in Jesus. There is this this reality that happens in sort of a, a cosmological sense where I have been cleansed. Now that doesn't mean you're sinless. Very much so, you are gonna go throughout the rest of your life and sin is going to be a struggle that's gonna pop up. There's things that you're gonna have to work through. But in the eyes of God, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you have been cleansed. You have been beautified, which is why Paul uses the identity language to call us saints, the holy ones. Now, this all happens through the gospel message, and as we live into that reality and understand who we are in Christ, more and more our our, our life will start to reflect the true identity that we have in Christ. So holiness, that identity that I have as the Holy One of God, uh, as a saint of, of the Lord, begins to be realized, so then what I become what I already am. So already I am holy in Christ, but as I live this life in the gospel through the power of the Spirit, I am becoming sanctified. Holiness is growing in my life. Now this is really what the the process of sanctification is all about. So in one sense, you're justified by faith in Christ. Like in that moment, you're, just, you're made clean. Um, Christ has, has taken upon your unrighteousness upon himself, and he has credited you with his own righteousness. You're justified, but then this act of sanctification, which is a lifelong process that will continue from that moment of justification until the new heavens and new earth, or until you go to be with the Lord, this is a process where we are being beautified by the gospel. And this happens as we behold who Jesus is. It's we're transformed from one degree of Christ-likeness to the next as our eyes are transfixed on him. In other words, you become what you behold. See, if you're beholding the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Sinless One, you will become like Him little by little as you make your way through this world. Now, as we talk about beautification through the gospel, we're not talking about a physical beauty. Um, Though we will be glorious creatures in the new heavens, new earth, this beauty that we start to um, adopt as our own through this life. Second Peter 3, 4 talks about this internal. It's an, an adorning of the soul and of the heart. Right? This beautification is, is happening on the inside and it works its way out. The internal and imperishable is redeemed. And the more that we behold Jesus' radiance, the more radiant we become so that through the eyes of faith, anything that is unholy 
becomes unappealing. When we understand holiness as beauty, um, what that does, it, it removes this misconception that holiness and happiness are opposites, that they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. And actually what it does is it, it, it links them. Tim Keller says, on the far side of holiness, you will always find true happiness. It, it's like that, that C.S. Lewis quote that he says, you know, um, aim, for, aim for heaven or aim for earth, and, and wait, I'm blotching this already. I got it all twisted in my head. Basically saying, like, when, when you make your goal heaven, all the joys of earth get thrown in. Now, if you, if you pursue joy here in this earth, you're going to miss it. It's going to be swing and a miss. But if you make your, your aim in life the joy of heaven, you'll get heaven and earth thrown in. And when we find this joy, this holiness, this happiness that's given to us in Christ, there's this whole new dimension of happiness that opens up, right? We experience it this morning as we worship together. The joy of our salvation bubbles up to the top where our arms fly up in worship, that shouts of praise, like even the call to worship this morning talked about the trumpet blast, like we're gonna lift up, you know, and I don't have a trumpet this morning, but I'm gonna shout like I do have a trumpet, right? Because why? Why are we doing this? Why do we have this kind of response in worship? It's because... We've found the joy of our salvation. Jesus has made us holiness, and in it, he brings joy. And this is exactly why Christians sing. This is why we make it a point to sing songs together every week. Not only does Paul tell us to do this back in, in uh, verses 18 through 20, earlier on, where he's talking about addressing each other in psalms and spiritual songs, making uh, voices, lifting voices to the Lord, he said, this is part of our own sanctification. This is part of us uh, delighting in the holiness that we have received in Christ. The gospel makes us glad. And because Paul links marriage and the gospel so closely, we talked about husbands and wives and Christ and the church, he's showing us that the aim of both the gospel and marriage is to make us holy, and in making us holy, he is making us happy. Marriage is a relationship that is designed for deep and ongoing transformation. In fact, it's likely that throughout your, every, every you know, phase of your marriage, every season of your marriage, you might be married to a different person. Because why? They're changing in the gospel. God is working. They're transforming them so that they are becoming more and more Christ-like. See, marriage is designed for this deep and ongoing transformation. It's not because you're demanding it from your spouse. It's not because you're taking a, a holier-than-thou posture and saying, you have to get with it. You've got to get your stuff together. You've got to change. That's not at all the posture of marriage here. The, the posture of marriage is I am changing and you are changing because the gospel is at work at both, in both of our hearts. And the moment I start to distance myself from the good news, the moment I, I turn myself off and, and forget about the gospel, the moment, that's the moment I stop transforming. That, that's the moment where I, I sort of plateau in my walk with Jesus. But if you are both making your life's mission to walk with Jesus, to become holy as he's made you holy, you together are being sanctified. C.S. 
See, marriage is a lot like <clears throat> rock polishing. <laughs> they take two rough cut rocks, throw it into a rock tumbler. They th- they've thrown this special solution, this powder that, that helps the re- rocks sort of, um, as they collide into each other and, and hit the rock tumbler, they start to chip away and it starts to smooth each other out. See, that's what marriage is doing. It's God throwing two people into the rock tumbler of marriage, throwing in the gospel, and as those things bounce around together, God is refining those two people to be the beauty that they were made to be. Now, here's where this sort of breaks down because the idea of rocks colliding into each other sounds very combative, uh, and that's not at all the intention of this. It's not meant to be a war. It's, it's not a fight. It's not this, this constant collision course. In fact, what marriage is, is meant to represent is true friendship. Marriage requires the safety, support, and patience of true friendship. And we've taken marriage in a lot of ways and turned it into this utilitarian thing. Like, we're going to use this so that we can get kids, right? We have this partnership. We have this shared life of we just got to raise our kids up and send them out. But reality about marriage, the reality, the biblical reality about marriage is that it is about companionship. And you see this right from the get-go in the invention of marriage um, in the early chapters of Genesis, where Adam is, is, God's created Adam, he's created the world, he's created animals, he's given Adam responsibility and work to do in, in tending to the garden and seeing to its flourishing. Yet Adam finds himself, as God creates all this stuff, he says, this good, it's good, it's good. And then the cadence gets broken when he looks at Adam all by himself and says, it is not good that man be alone. And so he makes a woman a helper that is fit for the man. And that, that word helper, you might look at it and you think it's a, derogative, uh, a derogatory term, but it's not. It's the same exact title that God uh, credits to himself. In fact, the word um, is, is ezer. It means a helper companion, or in other words, a co-laboring friend. So even though there is this shared purpose, there's a shared mission of them tending to the garden, seeing to its flourishing, they are friends. They're companions. And you can even see this in Proverbs chapter 2. It talks about the spouse. Um, the word is alop, um, a special confidant or best friend. See, if friendship is overlooked, your marriage will suffer. See, mar- marriage, marriage is essentially a friendship that moves romantic at some point. It was the key to Solomon's romance. Uh, I believe it's Song of Solomon's in, in chapter five. Uh, it, it's actually the woman who's saying, this is my lo- beloved, right? It's a very spicy, hot, hot and spicy sort of uh, uh, book of the Bible, um, talking about this, this, this romance, this, this love that they have for each other. He says, this is my lover, this is my beloved, this is my friend. Right? It, it's more than just the romance. There's, there's a friendship it goes beyond the physical intimacy. It goes beyond the productivity. It goes beyond the mission of doing whatever it is you've been called to do. Marriage is meant to be a friendship. Friendship, and all kinds of friendships, is the context where gospel change happens. So listen to me. Whether you're married or not, 
God calls you into gospel friendships. It's in the context of those relationships where Jesus is sanctifying you. It doesn't happen tucked away in an isolation chamber. It doesn't happen all by yourself doing like some sort of like um, book study, independent study. Sanctification happens in the context of in community and on mission. That's the way that Jesus made disciples. That's the way he transformed his disciples. It was in community and on mission. And marriage is a glorious friendship. See, marriage, one of the things, when we look at our spouse, the, the, the thing that we think when we see them should be, I really like that person. We seem to get along all right. It's good. They, they round me out. They, they, they complete a part of me that I, I sense to be lacking. In fact, that's what all good friendships do, right? It looks at the other person and say, hey, you're on to something, and I need you. And in marriage, it's, it's this linking together of, of BFFs, right? These two close friends. And this is where people tend to get, get dating wrong in our day and age, where you're just looking for the wrong thing. See, when, when you think about, hey, I, I'm looking for a suitor, you're not thinking, hey, I'm looking for my best friend. What, what we tend to think is, I'm looking for somebody who's fine. I'm looking for a hottie, somebody who, who's got an eye candy thing, but listen, make that, make that what you're looking for. Time and gravity will disappoint you. Another thing, oh, I'm looking, for, I'm looking for a sugar daddy. I'm looking for a sugar mama. I'm looking for somebody with that money that can get me through life, that coin to keep me floating. But listen, one thing that studies have shown is that money does not equal happiness. In fact, a lot of times, it's an obstacle to real happiness. What you need to look for, if you're a young person or if you're looking, if you're single, you're looking for, for that future spouse, which what, that's really what dating should be about. It's not about the, having fun in the moment. It's about I'm looking for God to bring along somebody who would make a good spouse. That's what Christian dating's about. You're needing to, you need to look for somebody that you love to spend time with. And if you find that person, it's so much easier for a friendship to become romantic than having a romance that has to sort of work in reverse and try to become a friendship. So much easier from friendship to romance. Just ask Jim and Pam from the office. (laughs) And the way that friendships develop most often is by finding a common bond This thing that you both have in common, it's a shared interest, a shared hobby, whatever it might be, it's something that brings you side by side with that other person. See, marriage is a face-to-face thing, right? Like, I'm looking deep into your eyes. I see you, I know you, you know me, you see me. But friendship starts off this side by side. We have this thing, we're moving towards this thing in common. Now, it might be football, which if you can find yourself a lady who likes football, good for you. Might be, it might be, um, I don't know, it could be your work, it could be all kinds of other things that you find interesting that develops a side-by-side thing. Now, if you're, if you're trying to rush into a face-to-face uh, relationship, going too fast could come across as desperate and kind of be a turnoff. And so one of the ways that you can step into a relationship, even, even in the dating of, I hope the Lord is bringing me along a spouse someday, if that would be his will, 
is I want to find a friend who I share an interest with. Now, it's in having this common interest that develops a bond. Think of it like a football team or any kind of sports team, um, even a debate team or whatever you're into. A team mentality where we share the same purpose. We have the same mission. This idea of we're moving towards something together is what cultivates the brotherhood. It's what cultivates a sisterhood. It's what cultivates this real friendship. It's the power of teams. And like I was saying, that that, that thing, that shared interest, could be nearly anything. But for the Christian, the, the foundational non-negotiable shared interest is Jesus. That, that, that's the be- that's, in fact, to have Jesus in common, and that be the only thing, that is so powerful that you can have literally nothing else in common and that be the thing that brings you together. Now, I think Becca and I might be a great example. Like, we like totally different music. We like doing totally different things. But one of the the things that is non-negotiable in our lives is we both love Jesus. And and that's so powerful that even if you do share all other kinds of interests, that thing, that Jesus becomes the one thing, the dominating thing within your relationship. Now this is why it is so important for Christians to be equally yoked to their spouse, right? As you're dating, if you're a Christian and you're on the dating scene, you should be looking for a Christian man or woman. Somebody who you share that fundamental thing in life with. That Jesus is, if you go to Jesus and talking about the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about built upon the rock or the sand, that, that you are both building your lives upon the rock of Christ. It's in this that you know that you're headed the same direction because if your life is built on Christ, you know that he is leading you into holiness. And if your life is built on anything other than Christ, your life is not necessarily moving toward holiness. Two very different destinations, which you try to yoke two different animals um, going in two different directions, it's not going to go well. Now, there is a concession here that if you are already married, and you are a believer, but your spouse is not. The Apostle Paul actually instructs you to stay in that relationship, in that covenant marriage. Pray for them. Be, be, live in a way that makes them ask the question, why are you like this? And your only answer can be, because Jesus has gotten a hold of my heart. See, if that's the case, like, like God can use that, but Missional dating, like dating somebody who's not yet a Christian in order to try to like win them over, that is not a wise way to go about looking for a spouse. Because ultimately, you have to both be radically committed to Jesus. And in being radically committed to Jesus, you will be radically committed to one another. So your spouse as first a friend is somebody who is committed to God's purpose in your life. It's somebody who looks at you and says, I see what God is doing in you, and I want to be a part of that. I want to be somebody who, who walks with you as God transforms you. Now, for us as Christians, there, there's a few things that we can say, okay, this for sure is the will of God. So it's hard for us to say, 
ask the question, is it the will of God for you to marry this person? That requires some discernment and wisdom. But there are things in the scripture where God says, this is in fact the will of God. And the will of God, in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says this, this is the will of God that you would be holy. This is it. This is what God wants for you to make you holy. Make you holy. And as you are in this friendship, this, this marriage with that other person, I'm trying to become holy. The Lord is making me holy. I'm giving myself to that process of sanctification, but I'm also taking part in the sanctification of that other person. Michelangelo was asked, how is it that you take the hammer and the chisel and you make David such a beautiful statue? And his response was, I just chisel away everything that wasn't David. He looks at this big slab of rock, and he doesn't just see what's there in the moment. He sees what that slab of rock can be transformed into, and that's what marriage is like. I see the future glory that awaits you. I see what God is doing, and I want to be there and walk with you through this. See, gospel marriage and and gospel friendship, for that matter, is a call to pick up the chisel and the hammer and to work in a way that enhances the other person. It's to help them along in their Christ-likeness. See, this is the purpose of marriage. Now, Paul has already laid out earlier in chapter four the tools that are used for this growth, this maturity uh, in the gospel. It's none other than truth and love. Those are the two instruments that God ordains for this work of soul beautification. It's how the church grows up holy. It's how your spouse becomes holy. How you become holy is through the truth and the love that is conveyed to you through the gospel. Now let's unpack this here. Because when we think of truth and love, we, we, we tend to think that they're... they're um, Opposites again, right? That if, oh, if I tell the truth, that's not a very loving thing to say, or if I'm gonna be loving, then I, I should probably withhold the truth or sugarcoat it or, or do, you know. That's just sort of like the, the natural way that we interact with truth and love, but here in the gospel, there is this, this, both of them are held in tension together in the same hand. As Lizzo says, truth hurts. If you're gonna tell the truth, there will be, at times, confrontation. Now, let's say this first, though. If you're gonna tell the truth, the primary thing that you need to be telling the truth about is that person's, that spouse's identity that's already in Christ. Hey, you're loved. You're holy. You're, you're a valued possession in God's eyes. That you've been made alive. You're no longer dead in sin. Like, there's all kinds of truth that we can speak over people that is affirming and elevating. But there are gonna be times where we have to speak the truth And it's going to sound a lot like confrontation. And this is why in Proverbs we hear this this talk about ironing sharpened irons, or iron sharpens iron. Right? When, When iron is sharpened iron, there are going to be sparks. There is friction and heat involved in the process of refinement. 
But it's never throwing sparks to throw sparks. It's never about blasting truth just to, to speak your mind. Proverbs 27 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. See, anytime there's confrontation, anytime that we have to speak a hard word, we do so. We, we hurt to heal. It's like a great surgeon, right? In order to get the cancer out, they have to first cut. That's not gonna feel good. But there has to be that initial incision if you are going to extract the thing which is undermining the health, specifically the health of a relationship. Right? So there might be some of that confrontation, that, that initial hurt or that, that kind of pinprick. There will be, if you go back to the, the rock tumble, there will be some of those collisions. Now, if you're a yes man to your spouse, to your friend, um, if, if you're one person that just sort of avoids conflict and, and stands back and just sort of waits for somebody else to speak up about something, or, or maybe you, you just like, you know, okay, this is what they do and this is what I do and they put up with me, so I'm gonna put up with them, where you just sort of call a truce, like where, where you lose the, the purpose of marriage to become holy and say, I'm just, I'm cool with where things are at right now. To be a yes man and never speak the truth is selfish and unloving. Because it puts yourself at the center. It says, like, I don't want, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to step on your toe. I don't want to have to go through, like, a four-hour stretch of where we're kind of at odds with each other. It's a selfish act that's working to preserve, and it hinders gospel growth. Now, if this is your tendency in your marriage or even in friendships where you're just like, you think one thing but don't ever speak that truth, in that moment, your comfort has become more important to you than your friend's or your spouse's sanctification. And if that's you, I wanna call you to repent. I wanna call you to speak the truth, and to speak the truth in love. Because this is how sanctification happens. Now, I'm not saying, this is not what I'm saying, and if you go home and do this, we're gonna have to have a talk. If you go home and you put your spouse on blast, well, I was telling the truth. That is equally unloving as not telling the truth in the first place. See, the key to speaking the truth and doing this well is a spirit of friendship that is just saturated in love. See, if, if you don't have that, that posture of love where your heart is so for them that, that you even will do the hard thing, if it's not that, then you are going to quickly turn your marriage into a competition, right? That the way you get up is to put others down or even your friendship might take that. You do this to maintain a sense of superiority or, or, or to work in a way that kind of keeps you a, a little bit of your nose above water in a way where they're clearly the inferior one because they got so much stuff to figure out. But if you have a posture of love toward your friend or your spouse, this is a restorative posture that everything that I do, because the love of Christ is working, uh, it comes into me through Christ and it comes out from me because of the Spirit, and the work of the Spirit. This is a restorative thing that happens. In fact, this is part of our, our mission at Sacred make, make Disciples, Plant Churches, Renew the City, I think, the fundamental way, like the, the bedrock way that we renew our city is by renewing relationships. It 
It's a restorative gesture to speak truth in love because what you're doing is going back to the gospel. Here's your identity. Here's who you are. Here's what is most true about you when your identity is Christ. And I want to call you, just as Christ does, to walk and to live into that identity. Paul talks, this, this section here in verse 25 through 27, he says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church as he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might become holy without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. See, the things that husbands are called to do are thought to be domestic tasks. To wash, to nourish, to cherish. And what, this is, what Paul's inviting men to do, which would have been very, very, very uh, counterintuitive to that, that first century idea of how husbands interact with wives, he is calling men, husbands, into a posture of tenderness. Right, you see this even in, in say, wash her. You, you might even think of it this way, to, to bathe her in the water of the word. No, bathing is an intimate thing, right? You, you've got to... Strip down to your birthday suit. You, you put yourself in a, in a vulnerable position. And even in the context of marriage, see this, this tenderness, this love, and this truth that, that's meant to happen and, and sort of be exchanged in marriage. Sort of, it has this remnant of, of Eden, of, of to be naked and unashamed. And so when husbands being called to, to tenderly wash their wives with the water of the word, it's acknowledging this intimate act that's meant to be happening. And secondly, it's so intimate that there's this knowledge of, of the bride's frame, that you know her, you know where she's wounded, where she's got these scrapes and cuts, so it's not like you, you just blast through it, but there's a tenderness, a gentleness that comes. When I was growing up, um, we would throw hay from time to time in the summer, and, and throwing hay was like this, it was a, a terrible trade-off, because it's always so, so hot, and, and you're supposed to wear jeans so you don't tear up your legs, right? I don't know if you've ever thrown hay bales before, but it scratches the bejeebers out of your legs. It's a trade-off between surviving the heat or comfortability. And in those days that I opted to wear shorts, I always regretted it because I had so many cuts. But, the, but I would really regret it when I stepped into the shower. I mean, you'd just be caked in dust and dirt, and you go and you let that shower head hit you, and your legs are on fire because the soap and the water just stings, right? Well, you know you gotta do it. You know the wounds have to be cleaned. Otherwise, infection sets in. But there's this tenderness that you have to take. So it's like that. Husbands, to know your wife's frame, to know where she's got these nicks and scratches and address them with gentleness, to be tender toward her, and here's the crazy thing. As you wash her with the water of the word, you're working toward her sanctification. Not only that, you are being sanctified in the process. 
Because what's happening is you are being called into having the disposition that Christ has toward the church. He's not rough with his bride. He doesn't beat her up and say, you need to just get with it. He's tender and gracious and loving toward his bride. He knows exactly what to say, exactly how to affirm and challenge and rebuke and bring in. Now, all of our, I think all of our gospel friendships should have this sort of, this attitude of, I'm here for your sanctification, you're here for my sanctification, the way that we're going to move forward in this is through truth and love. It's, it's this vision of glory that compels us to be gospel friends. And marriage has this, yet there's this added dimension of marriage where it's friendship that's spiked with romance. Where, where there's this physical expression you do with your bodies what you've already done with your souls. And while that romantic dimension is there, it's never the priority. It's a glorious byproduct. But the priority is on the friendship. Now let me ask you this. How would your marriage change if you believed, like in your heart of hearts, that the purpose of your marriage is the pursuit of holiness. How, how would your, how would dating change if you knew the point of this relationship, if it were to move towards marriage, is for holiness? I think that there would be some intentionality, first of all, with having date nights, that time set aside where we can connect and be friends. It doesn't have to be anything extravagant. It could be very low-key, but setting aside that time. Maybe that looks like turning your TV off for 30 minutes and having that time to connect, to know your friend's heart, to hear how the gospel's at work in their life, how you can encourage them, how you can remind them of their true identity in the gospel. For some of us, Marriage have, has really become pragmatic, and so we, we haven't let um, the fun be part of marriage. We might, maybe you even feel guilty about it, but friends enjoy each other. And so to establish or reestablish this fun that we have together back into your rhythms, maybe that means rediscovering a, a common bond or, or maybe finding a completely new one. Creating that thing that fosters the side-by-side so when you go face-to-face, you have this depth of intimacy because your lover is your friend. This, This intimacy, the vulnerability, the friendship of marriage points to our union with Jesus as the bride of Christ. We see Jesus as the friend of sinners. He's the one that moves in towards us. He's the one that's that's initiating relationship of, hey, I I like you. I think a lot of people don't have that mentality that Jesus is sort of looking at us from a distance saying, man, I really hope he gets it figured out. And then we could be friends. But Jesus, where you are right now says, I like you. I'm moving in toward you. I want you. I want to have a relationship with you. And in that friendship of sinners, Jesus moves towards the lover of our souls. We know his constant pursuit of us, where he knows the good, bad, and the ugly of our souls. And he loves us. 
anyway, in spite of those things. He never condemns. He doesn't look down his nose at us, but he looks to us and he wants to restore us and elevate us with the love and the truth of the gospel. That you are worse. Your sin is, it's got you in this worst position that you ever thought, but you in the gospel are more loved than you can dare to dream. And when we see the gospel, what we see is exactly what Paul talks about where Jesus lays down his life for the church to make her a glorious creature. He, he lays down, Jesus, when, when sin was placed upon him, Jesus was, he became ugly. The, the ugliness of sin was put upon him and it was there condemned in the flesh. And as he does this, his holiness, his beauty, his radiance gets transferred to the church. Now when Jesus is up there on the cross, do you think that Jesus was feeling chemistry between he and the church? Legally, oh yeah, oh she's a hottie. I can't. Oh man, this is so. No, in that moment, Jesus, it's a self-denying love where He lays His life down, where where our needs are placed above His own. And it says, Jesus on the cross, they they put a spear through His side, and blood and water hit the ground. See, it's the blood of Christ that atones us for sin. It's the water that washes us, the water of the word that washes us, and it keeps us near in relationship to God. We see Jesus nourish his bride through the sacrament of the Lord's table, which we're about to take part in. It it, it gives us a spiritual strength. Not only is the spirit of God living and residing in us, he gives us a meal, a tangible reminder of the power that's working through us to nourish our souls. Jesus shows that he cherishes us, that that he is our beloved and, and we are his. And in in marriages, you have a sign of the covenant, like a a wedding band or or something of the sort. Jesus says, your name is engraved on my hand. See, my love for you, I cherish you so much that I've made you a part of me. That's what it means to have union with Christ, right? Marriage is union of two souls, two people, and Christ, in Christ, we, we get this union where we are in him and he is in us. If you think the gospel is transactional in a, oh, I just need to put my faith in Jesus and that'll punch my ticket to heaven, you, you got it wrong. The gospel is not transactional. It's relational. Jesus wants to have a real friendship with his people. And it's in that context of real friendship where transformation, it's you, you look Jesus in the eyes and you become more like him. And it's in this relationship that is aimed at holiness that we find our ultimate happiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for marriage and the fact that it points us in a very visceral way to the relationship that Christ has with his bride. I want to pray for the marriages in this room right now that more and more our marriages would mirror the way that Christ interacts with his bride, where he lays down his life for us so that we may live. I pray that you would raise up men in this room who are both great truth speakers and great lovers with the aim of holiness driving our marriages. Would you lead us into the depths of happiness 
in the salvation that we have in Christ, in the sanctification, the beauty that you are producing within us. I pray for the single folks in this room right now. I ask God that while there might be a longing for marriage someday, that they would right now experience Christ as the lover of their soul that there would be a deep satisfaction in him and, and, and a satisfaction so thorough that, that quenches the thirst of having that other person so that even if, if it is your will, God, for singleness to be a lifelong season, that they would never once be doubting the goodness of God because they have everything they need in Christ. And I pray for future marriages that come would you give them this glorious purpose? Make us holy, and in the gospel, make us happy. We ask this for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.